Hi, and welcome to Real Trail Talk. I'm Donovan D'Souza from The Long Way's Better. And I'm Mark Pybus from The Life of Pi. Welcome to episode 34. We have our long-awaited Bushfires podcast. Very long-awaited, since I think I announced this uh, in April or May last year, yeah, and so we, we never recorded it. <laughs> so we finally got around to it, and because Donovan and I aren't experts, we've brought in a couple for you guys to listen to. So we've got Piers Verstagen from the Conservation Council of WA, and we have Hannah Etchells, who is a UWA ecology student who's doing her PhD on the impact and recovery of catastrophic bushfires on the forests of southwest WA. So welcome guys. Thanks. Thanks for having us. So it's kind of, we need to start this off with a bit of a, a warning. It's not just going to be a bashing on DBCA and what they do, because yeah. we all know that prescribed burns do need to occur. Oh, maybe. But I think the thing is that we, we both have agreed that we don't want to have just an emotive argument. It's not just about, oh, I don't like it. It's more about the, the facts and looking at the at an evidence-based response to what they're doing, whether it's right, whether it's wrong. Those are things that we hope to be able to nut out a little bit through this conversation. So, Piers, you've written a few articles on this topic in the past, and one quite recently, well, last year in response to the um, out-of-control fires on the Sterling Range and Tondirup National Park. What are your kind of, what are your thoughts just on prescribed burning as a whole, whether they should occur, shouldn't occur, that kind of thing? Yeah, look, I, I, I like the um, approach that you're taking to this issue because fire in general is a really emotive topic and people respond to it in, in very different ways. And uh, generally, the way that fire is portrayed through the media doesn't actually help with that. In my experience, that ends up uh, creating divisions between different groups in the community and mm. that doesn't help actually achieving a consensus around how we should be managing um, the, these areas. Uh, but to, to come back to your question which is uh, about you know fire and what the conservation sector I suppose as a representative of Conservation Council thinks about fire, unlike w w what some people might suggest, the conservation sector isn't completely opposed to all forms of prescribed burning. The conservation sector recognises that there is a role for um, fuel reduction and prescribed burning in some particular situations, particularly around towns and, and other assets that we aim to protect. Uh, but what we're really opposed to is an approach that's taken at the moment with prescribed burning, which seems to be uh, to burn out very large areas that aren't necessarily close to assets that we want to protect from wildfire and uh, at, at a very uh, high level of, of, of intensity and a high rotation, so doing that very frequently. And what we're concerned about there is that that really does have serious impacts on the ecology in those places. In the southwest, uh, we can talk about the, the impacts that, that are occurring there, but essentially uh, repeated uh, fires are drying out those landscapes and, and leading to a loss of, of, of ecosystem uh, capacity and, and, and diversity in some of those places. But also there's a lot of evidence to show that uh, prescribed burning doesn't actually necessarily reduce the risk of uh, bushfire and, and isn't necessarily the first thing that should be considered in terms of a management response to bushfire. There's a range of different ways that we should be uh, managing our, our natural resources, our forests and woodlands, and uh, prescribed burning is just one of those tools, and it shouldn't be the be-all and end-all when it comes to uh, trying to manage the risks of bushfire. 
I agree on a lot of those points there. Um, Hannah, you uh, probably from not from a prescribed burn perspective, but you are in the aftermath of the 2015 Northcliffe fires, which wiped out a huge percentage of the Cary Forest down there. How have you seen the response to that bushfire within like communities around there? And also maybe give us a little bit of a background on what you found um, post recovery. Yeah, absolutely. I- Um, I definitely will get to that talking about the results of my research so far, but I just wanted to address some things about prescribed burning that potentially are worth considering um, if we're going to be having this discussion. And yeah, it's really great to hear that obviously Conservation Council understand that prescribed burning can be used as a tool in an arsenal of ways to prevent really high fuel loads and help prevent future fires and also help regeneration in the bush. So it's really cool to hear because I feel like probably I sit more on what might be traditionally considered the other side, even though well, I get lumped in with that. But I actually firmly you know, position myself in a very ambiguous place where I'm a scientist and I'm here to ask questions. So I would say it's quite irresponsible of me as a scientist to say black or white, yes or no, good or bad. Um, so instead, I'd just like to share with you like a little bit of the knowledge that I have about the ecosystems of Southwest Australia. And one of the first things that captured me and got me really excited about studying ecology was when I learnt that the landscapes and the ecosystems in this part of the world have relied on fire for regeneration for millennia. And that used to be in the form of natural lightning ignited fires that didn't happen very frequently. And then over the last 65,000 years has been, you know, fires uh, lit by indigenous people in various small ways in low intensity. So sort of similar, but also in a lot of ways not similar to what DBCA are trying to do right now. So there's sort of this this two-edged sword. You can't say that fire is bad because it's not. Our species have evolved over a really long time to cope with fire and in fact rely on it. I don't know whether you guys know this, but carry the tree, so the word carry in the Noongar language means fire or to burn. And that's because the Indigenous people recognised long ago that these trees are so fire tolerant and they can actually withstand really, really high wildfire. And in fact, we used to think that they were almost perpetually fire tolerant. And that's where my study comes in. In 2015, we had the most catastrophically severe wildfire in Cary Forest that we've seen in the last 100 years. And I actually saw the first instances of mature Cary trees that were killed by that fire. So they've reached their threshold. And that's not because of mismanagement of landscape necessarily or anything like that. The big overriding thing with that is actually that it was following two years of intense drought after 50 years of lower than average rainfall and two of the hottest summers on record with higher than usual lightning strikes. So it was basically a perfect storm. That was a, you know, a wildfire in the truest sense. It was, it was ignited by lightning at the end of a really hot summer. And so what we've seen um, after that since 2015 is a shift, especially in the areas of the North Cliff fire that were burnt so severely, a shift in the way that the plants are regenerating. And that's led to a shift in the way that the animals are returning to the landscape and using the landscape, which is where um, one of my interests lies in a chapter of my PhD, um, looks at that. So there are parts of the Northcliffe fire that have actually recovered really well, and those are the areas that were burnt at a sort of low to moderate intensity. So that could kind of, you know, indicate that perhaps those intensities in those smaller patches are actually, if not beneficial, you know, they're, they're not doing any harm. 
However, what we did see is these patches where the fire burnt so severely that the ecosystem was changed. And we think what we're going to be seeing now is what we call like this, this threshold point, a tipping point in ecological terms. So yeah, that's pretty fascinating. And that's sort of where my research is focusing right now is what is that tipping point? Yeah, very interesting. I guess to, to talk about this, I think we want to probably start with a, I guess, a why burn why, why, what is the reason? So looking at a devil's advocate, sort of, well, if it, if it has to be done, why why do we do this? So I guess, let's just ask you guys, what, what's yeah. the reason behind well, this as a land? Uh, yeah, land I'll just jump in. I've practice. spent the last seven months um, in California, and I'm sure you've heard that they had the most devastating fire season in their entire history in 2018, and I was there for pretty much all of it working in the fire sciences laboratory at Berkeley, which is one of the world leading fire sciences labs. So it was a pretty crazy place to be. It was, yeah, pretty stressful, fascinating, tragic, all of those things. The one thing I had never realized until I went over there is that in California, they don't do very much prescribed burning at all. And one of the reasons among the variety of reasons, you know, one of them being climate change, the other being land use change, that they have these incredibly high fuel loads that lead to these out-of-control fires is because they practiced fire suppression for around 100 years. And basically, if you go into some of the forests, especially um, in the Sierra Nevada mountains, which run down the spine of California, um, and you go into sites that have been fire suppressed for the last 100 years, it's basically kindling, like dried wood stacked up in what looks like bonfires almost because there's been nothing there to remove that in a natural sort of cycle that would be burnt either by indigenous people or by um, lightning ignited fires on a fairly you know um, frequent schedule they're estimating between seven and 15 years so it's similar to what we think for maybe Jarrah forest for example except they haven't done that they've actively suppressed them and now what they're seeing is that these fires when they do ignite burn completely out of control and obviously have had these devastating effects. So it's not to say that the reason that we should burn is because, you know, we've always done it. The reason that we should burn is because in a changing climate, it's one of the most effective tools we have. We, we can't just operate as normal. We've crossed that threshold with climate change where what we're going to see in the future, whether we like it or not, is longer, hotter, drier summers in southwest WA and in California, and therefore like many, many more days of fire weather and higher chances of these catastrophic fires starting and continuing. So we do need to act to reduce fuel loads. And that's sort of, I don't know, the main takeaway message I got from California is they need to reduce their fuel loads. Mm. Yeah, I had a friend who went to Yosemite and he came back and he said, they just don't burn. No. I was like, that is crazy, mm-hmm. um, especially for the dry climate that California has. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just couldn't believe that. So, I yeah. mean, there you've got one end of the extreme is California who don't do any burns. And then you've got WA who I won't say do all the burning, but we have quite high targets that we um, try and achieve. Mm. I think that you asked the question about what are the reasons to do prescribed burning, yeah. and I think that um, they're quite different. For you know, if you look at the situation from different perspectives, you can say from a risk management perspective, there's a school of thought that says exactly what we've just talked about: that you know, fuel loads need to be managed. Otherwise, we're going to have catastrophic fires, and the way to do that is by prescribed burning. And in some ecosystem types, certainly, you know, I, th- I think that's that's absolutely valid. I don't think that that's an approach that applies to all ecosystem types, and I don't mm. think it's an approach that uh, lends itself well to 
the kind of policy arrangements that we've got at present. So then we should look at what some of the other drivers are of prescribed burning. I think that uh, in some cases there's a cultural expectation of the government to do prescribed burning by, in some cases, uh, uh, landowners, but in some cases mm. communities. Uh, so that that um, is, is part of the mix. I think if you're in an agency that relies on uh, income for staffing and for, you know, to, to, to maintain the operations of the agency and prescribed burning is, is a way to get that income, then that can become a driver as well. Mm. And, you know, I've, I've worked within government. I know how powerful um, budget allocations are as a driver of, of government behaviour. That, that's, not, that's not something specific to uh, DBCA that, that occurs across all, all parts of government. And if you're a minister... Uh, and and so you, you you are potentially responsible for land management outcomes. You want to be able to say, well, we did what we could uh, to prevent um, wildfire, and it's very easy to simply allocate more money to prescribed burning and maintain a high target for prescribed burning because it, you know uh, otherwise there's parts of the community that are always going to be critical, and that and they will say if there is a, a an out of control bushfire. They will say, well, that's the responsibility of government. You didn't do enough prescribed burning. So, you know, to an extent, uh, that's just a human kind of reaction. You, you, do, you do what uh, is, is going to be easy. But that, that, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are the right reasons or, or the best reasons. But I think that there are some of the drivers that occur as well. Mm. I guess the question there, which is, you know, behind the why burn is also a matter of how much of it is for environmental reasons and how much of it is for anthropocentric reasons that we're doing it to, for communities. Because I guess one of the things that I guess DBCA tend to do is they tend to use it really, they talk about it from a, oh, it's for environmental regeneration purposes, but then sometimes where they burn is clearly for asset protection or presumably for asset protection. Hmm. That, I guess a that's really a good question. Point. That's a really good point, and uh, actually this goes to the question of management planning for our conservation estate, and even to the legal basis for that. So our conservation estate, whether it's state forest or national parks, is actually vested under the Conservation and Land Management Act, the CARM Act. That act requires those lands to be managed primarily for the purpose of environmental protection. Mm. Uh, our cultural management is also part of that now, and there's been a change to that act so that uh, cult, you know, the, the, the management of land to um, protect and enhance uh, cultural assets, as in Aboriginal cultural assets and, and cultural processes, is also an important management objective, but the primary management objective is maintenance of, of environmental values. Mm. Now, w when you've got that as the legal basis for the management of these areas, it means that the department have to come up with burn plans that are consistent with management plans for those areas when they do prescribe burns. And that requires the department to set out a reason for doing those burns. And invariably, they often put uh, you know, protection of biodiversity values on those burn plans. On the other hand, what's driving them to do those burn plans and where the budget's coming from to do those burn plans is a s totally separate government policy, which says, well, we should be burning 200,000 hectares per year across the, the landscape in order to protect uh, infrastructure and in order to reduce the risk of wildfire. So you've got one government policy that's that's coming from one perspective to reduce wildfire 
in theory, which is driving the behaviour of a government agency which is supposed to be primarily protecting environmental values. And I think that that's, that's one of the issues with the current kind of way that prescribed burning is undertaken, that, that the driver of prescribed burning isn't necessarily consistent with the reasons for uh, why our, our national parks are actually protected and the, the legislative basis for the management of those areas. Yeah, certainly we've noticed just looking at where the areas that are burnt um, most often occur, we've noticed that pine plantations are quite nearby. And I think it's a bit of a, a conflict of interest that the Forest Products Commission is also partly, well, their only shareholder is the government essentially. So it's one of those weird things where they should be doing it for environmental reasons, but if you stand back, you can see that it's quite clearly to protect those assets. Mm. I think that's another big, big part of the situation, and it's not just pine plantations, um, but you know, and the protection of fire from from getting into those pine plantations, which are which are assets that are that are owned by the government, as you say, but also uh, regen carry forests in the southwest after logging. There's a lot of effort to try and prevent um, fires getting into those areas, and yeah. that's to to protect that that asset, if you like. Yeah. Um, but it's not necessarily consistent with what we've just heard about uh, the ecology of carry forests. Well, yeah, I mean, y- you shouldn't. Uh, so it's widely understood, and again, this is an area I'd like to stress here that this is an area that's critically under-researched. So if this is something that like gets you really excited, please, please come and do your PhD. <laughs> come and research this. Because there's a lot of people with a lot of opinions who say a lot of things about it, but actually we can't say anything definitively. We can't say that doesn't go with the ecology, or we can't even say that does go with the ecology. We don't know. That's why I'm doing my PhD. But in terms of curry, we do know that they're pretty unable to regenerate following fire until they reach reproductive maturity, which is around 12 to 15 years, kind of like people. Um, Although, you know, yeah, we don't regenerate so well after fire. Um, (laughs) So that's why they protect the um, logged areas, because obviously those trees are vulnerable until they're about 12 years old. So you don't want them to burn until then. But yeah, my, my point was going to be, because the ecosystems here are evolved with fire, it is important to recognise that some fire on the landscape is integral to their regeneration. There are certain species of seed that can't germinate without carikinolides. And again, that word, carikinolide, it's named after smoke. Um, there are, you know, species of fungi that come up after fire that are really important for plants to uptake nutrients. So we, we, can't, we can't remove fire from our landscape. We have to accept that it's going to be a part of it. And we should be managing it in the best way possible for ecological values. Also, we live in this landscape. We hike in this landscape. There are women track huts that we need to protect, otherwise people are going to die. So we do need to have both sides. It's silly to say, oh, they're saying they're doing it for environmental reasons, but then we saw they were doing it around a place. It's like, well, of course they're doing it to protect a place. But if they can also try and do as much environmental help as well while they're doing that, then that's great. It's better than not burning at all, which would be catastrophic in the long run. I guess the where there's probably a little bit of a question mark about the the processes and the time frames is that i feel like there's certain areas that we definitely see that are burnt on a very high frequency and there's some areas that you've mark you were talking to rangers down south that said haven't been burnt in 30 odd years so around mm-hmm. donnelly river um, mm. They just they have to wait for those perfect conditions, and sometimes they don't get them. And no, especially now that 
we are getting these, well, in the last few years, these longer, hotter, drier summers. It is, you know, often too dangerous to burn and then sometimes too wet to burn as well. So you do have to wait. I mean, there's nothing that can really be done about that. Also, if you're talking about Donnelly River, you're talking about Cary Forest and it is, as far as we can tell so far from the research that we've done into that, it is a forest that probably burns on a longer interval than, for example, Jarrah. So the way that Jarrah is burnt is supposed to be between seven and ten years and sometimes it's less and sometimes it's more just depending on all these sorts of things that occur and timing and weather etc um but carry because it is in a cooler damper place it's and because we know these trees can't be fire resilient until they are at least 12 or so we we suspect that it's probably longer intervals naturally speaking and that if they were burnt by indigenous people they would have been burnt at longer intervals as well. So in Donnelly and especially around Valley of the Giants and areas like that, there are certainly parts that are long unburnt. So we'd say longer than 30, 40 years unburnt. And that's because I suppose it gives us an indication of what those are like. I'm going in and I'm measuring the fuel loads in those. I'm measuring the regeneration. I'm measuring the soils and the plants and animals that are there to work out whether or not they have sort of reached an equilibrium, whether or not they are standing there are dangerous, whether or not they're declining, because there is an argument to say that in these fire adapted landscapes, if you leave them after a while, so maybe it's 10 years, maybe it's 30, maybe it's 60, biodiversity starts to decline and you get fewer animals and fewer plants. So that's what we're monitoring at the moment. We're trying to work out the answer to that question, but we don't know. Is there an equivalent of the Jarrah forest that has also got an unburnt long period of time that is used as a control for those similar experiments? In my field sites, I also look at some Jarrah forest and I do have some sites that from the mapping and stuff don't look like, so we use sort of, you know, um, satellite imagery and stuff to work out when things are burnt. Also, we use records of DPOR, DBCA, CALM, DEC, whatever, um, prescribed burn efforts over the last however many years. So there are some patches that come up that might be long unburnt, but again, we don't know for sure. So we treat them as un- long unburnt, but they're probably more like 30 years long unburnt maximum, as opposed to in the carry where you do have these 50, 60 year unburnt areas. Hmm. I think one of the blanket arguments that gets used, especially online when people talking about prescribed burning is a lot of people just think that if something gets lit on fire, it'll recover 100% and that's the way it's meant to be. Right. Um, especially when it comes to prescribed burning and it's happening every five years. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily, as you're saying, the normal process. It'd be 7 to 10 or 30 plus, depending on what type of forest. Mm. Definitely vegetation dependent. And I'm not saying, obviously, what's being done now is perfect because, I mean, you know, can't really say anything. We don't know whether it's perfect or not. But it does seem to be that there is a lot um, there. You know, everyone talks about these targets. And it does, I think, need to be reconsidered in terms of taking a more specific to ecosystem specific specific to climate approach as well because for example even in such a small area across my field sites from the southwest highway to the coast at Windy Harbour right so say for example that turn off just past Pemberton where you turn down um, Middleton Road to go down to um, or Wheatley Coast Road one of them to go down to Northcliffe that road is like 50 kilometres long or something and along that 50 kilometres the rainfall changes from being like 1300 on average a year mills to like 800. So the difference in that area is huge. Those forests, even though they're all carry forest, jarrah forest and some heathland as well, 
are all quite different. So that's in such a small space. So yeah, I agree. It's not particularly sensible to necessarily apply the same burn regime to the entirety of the southwest to say, hey, we burn Jara forest in the Darling Range at this interval, so we should be burning Jara forest near Denmark at this interval, because that's not necessarily true. The issue is there are no people doing research that no one knows anything about it. There's very little government funding. And this is why I implore people, if this is something that interests you, we really need all hands on deck to work out how to solve this problem. Mm. So, Piers, you might be able to help on this one. Where if you've researched this, are the government getting their scientific methods from or have they just been doing it based off how it's been done in the past? I think the comment is right that this is is severely under-researched and when you compound that with the fact that a lot of the prescribed burns are occurring across very large areas that take into account lots of different ecosystem types, uh, you've really got a recipe for an outcome that we actually don't know what it's going to be when we Mm -hmm. undertake these kinds of prescribed burns. I mean, I'll give you some examples around the same sort of area because that's actually where I grew up. Um, in, in the North Walpole area, there's been prescribed burns that, that have been very, very large in, in those areas uh, recently in, in, within the Walpole Wilderness area. And w- within those areas, you'll have uh, some areas of carry forest, which are you know, um, arguably relatively well adapted to um, more frequent fires. You've also got peatlands. And in some of these uh, prescribed burns, the department hasn't even been aware that the peatlands are there, but they've caught fire as a result of the prescribed burn. And then you've had these peatlands burning away for months and months and months. You actually can't put the peat out. Now, these peat uh, deposits, these peatlands have been developing for tens of thousands of years, and they can be wiped out or, you know, just really seriously altered through a prescribed burn. Now, the same could happen through a catastrophic wildfire, of course, but that hasn't happened for tens of thousands of years. And yet, with a prescribed burn, it's it's caused uh, the, um, the, 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 the destruction of those peatlands. And that's partly because the outcome that they're seeking with the prescribed burns is complete coverage. And we, we actually advocate for a different approach. We, ab- we actually advocate for some areas that we say, well, they should be long unburned. And, you know, a- another uh, response that I've seen with my own eyes in the Tingle Forest in particular and in the Carry Forest, after you burn those forest types, it leads to the regeneration of a huge amount of understory species. Uh, and then that becomes uh, essentially an impenetrable thicket. You can't, or, you know, it's much more difficult to walk through. Um, so some of the <laughs> <On topic. laughs> uh, long unburned uh, forests, uh, by, by comparison, are actually very, very open. You have that swordgrass uh, understory and you can walk through them relatively easily. Uh, and so th- th- there's a question for me over, well, y- what is the lower fuel environment? What is mm. actually the environment which is lower risk in terms of uh, a-, a fuel load? I think I would rather be in, in a long unburned uh, tingle forest if I was trying to you know, um, withstand a wildfire than in one of them that had been burnt more recently because of the massive uh, uh, regeneration of understory species. Now, you could look at that from a, from a scientific perspective and a biodiversity perspective and reach different conclusions and say, well, actually, it's, it's actually more biodiverse after a fire. And, and, and so you might reach different conclusions again. But, but from our perspective, we think that there should be uh, some of these areas that should remain long unburnt. You, you shouldn't just apply a blanket practice of, of, of burning these areas repeatedly on the same frequency because we don't know what the long-term ecological consequences of that are. 
And I've seen recently um, uh, uh, results of, of research that have been done by Kingsley Dixon and others to, to show that even within a, a single forest type, you'll have species in there that are adapted to uh, frequent burning regimes and in some cases might require frequent burning regimes. You'll also have species within those forest types uh, that uh, actually need uh, uh, long, long times of long unburned forest, otherwise they can't regenerate. Mm. Uh, and so that tells me that we actually need a diversity of different uh, uh, burning regimes yeah. of these forests. There's a name for it in science. It's called pyrodiversity. And, and we... Basically, the the thinking is at the moment, like the best shot we have, I say we don't know anything, but we have this idea that you're exactly right. We want to have these areas that are long unburnt. We want to have these areas that are frequently burnt to understand those two, and then something in the middle in these small mosaics. However, that requires much more planning, much more manpower. And I'm not sure whether you guys know, but DBCA is one of the lowest funded government agencies in the entire state. They are operating on a shoestring budget. Mm. My supervisor works out of the Manjamup office and most of the offices in there are empty. It used to be a staff of like, you know, 50 or 60 and there's like six of them in there mm. now. So they're doing their best on what very, very little resources they have. Sometimes they have to make decisions um, that are more of a broad brush stroke than they are in these tiny, minute mosaics, which I agree with you, look like they're going to be the most ecologically beneficial. But I would like to get a little bit sciencey, and I promise it won't be super boring. Um, but if you imagine a graph, right? I know this is probably tricky in a podcast, but I sort of thought about how I would explain this earlier. Imagine a graph. So you've got your um, two axes, the line going up and the line going across. If you imagine on the line going up, you've got fuel load. So the amount of sticks and leaves and branches and things there are in a forest to burn. And then on the line going across on the horizontal axes, you've got time. Now, imagine in that graph a little hill-shaped line. So a line that goes from zero and then goes up and makes a hill, goes into a plateau at the top, and then starts to slowly decline again. That's how we understand, at least in um, wet, tall eucalypt forests like Kerry. This is um, based on research that's been done over in the eastern states, but we think it broadly applies to Kerry too, which is exactly what um, Piers was talking about before in terms of these older unburnt forests having lower fuel loads. So what we've got basically is over time, so if fire is time zero, there's zero fuel. And over time that fuel accumulates and accumulates and accumulates in quite a steep line. And then it gets to a point where it plateaus and the fuel loads stay the same. Say, let's imagine that to be, you know, 15 years, 20 years, right? And then after about 30 years or 40 years in these Eastern States forests at least, we see these fuel loads start to decline from exactly what you were talking about before, where these understory species, which are disturbance specialists that have regenerated following a fire, start to die away, and you actually get this more open understory with the swordgrass, Lepidospermum, um, and the higher trimalian that actually has this almost second undercanopy with the Alocasherina and all those other species that you can walk through, and it does potentially have a fuel, lower fuel load. The issue is... We can't be on that line going up as it goes up as we face this future of longer, hotter, drier summers, many, many more days of fire weather and this increased prevalence of lightning strike because it's just too dangerous because we have burnt these areas and most of the Cary Forest, most of the Jarrah Forest is somewhere on that line going up, reaching that critical high fuel load. And we don't have... We, we just don't, it's not safe to wait that extra 10 years at that incredibly high fuel load for those to go down again. So we do need to 
do something to reduce that fuel load in order to prevent these large-scale catastrophic wildfires. And that's sort of where it becomes difficult. It's not like we can operate, um, you know, in this way that maybe even the way that um, Indigenous people burnt, you know, over a really long time because we are seeing this, you know, very, very fast um, climate change that's actually changing faster than our species have time to adapt to. So what you're saying is we're all doomed. <laughs> and I mean, yes, I'm a conservation scientist, so it is a large part well, what, of that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, what, what I'm hearing from that is that we have to keep burning because we have been burning, and so we're on that trajectory of increased fuel loads, so we have to keep on that same um, pathway. I mean, uh, um, yeah, and I think, you know, in, in some respects that has merit, but I think we also should be looking for those areas that have... Uh, long unburned um, characteristics and low mm. fuel loads I agree with and you. trying to protect and preserve those and that is not what's occurring at the moment where well, you have so my my long unburnt field sites are protected none of those will be burnt by dbca um in the foreseeable future i mean my i mean you know obviously full disclosure here i'm supervised by a member of dbca so some small amount of my funding comes from them um, and they have a vested interest in trying to figure out how to best protect these. All of the people that work for DBCA, especially in the management of Walpole offices, have degrees in ecology and conservation science. They're not, you know, I don't know, <laughs> money-hungry people that want to burn everything at all in any in any way. Um, they're all fantastic nature lovers who go hiking and, and yeah. So it's it's not it, it's sort of more complicated than just saying we can't do this just because we've always done it it's like well maybe we do need to do this and we are protecting these areas like you're wrong in saying that there are no long unburnt areas that are being protected because there are i they're my field sites as well as other areas that i know exist well um when when we've had those kinds of conversations with the agency they've usually told us that that they don't have a, the resources, which is a good point, and, and they Absolutely. need um, uh, additional resources, uh, or, or the management planning that um, can enable such a fine grain with in terms of planning and, and prescription of fire uh, to maintain these long unburned areas. If they happen to be within a block that is earmarked for prescribed burning, and in, in many cases they're very large blocks, uh, then they will be burned, and, and, and that's what they, they tell us. But mm. certainly I, I agree that we need to be um, putting much more resources into, A, the science of understanding the impacts, but, B, actually doing the fire management because it's it's relatively cheap to burn out very large areas by dropping incendiary devices from helicopters uh, and meeting you know these... Uh, what I regard as relatively arbitrary prescribed burning target, there's a cheap way to go about doing that, and of course that's what is happening. That's not necessarily the most ecologically sustainable way to go about doing that, and I, I think if, if we are to, um, to to really look at the situation, we need to get that, that much better understanding, but also that much finer grain um, uh, detail in terms of how we're managing these areas so that we're not just treating uh, mm. all ecosystem types the same. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I agree yeah. with everything you're saying as well. I just, yeah, I think it, it, it's just, it's important to be careful about sort of, I don't know, demonising any one particular group of people, I suppose, people that, um, especially people like DBCA, because I think people get very up in arms about them and always have. Like I remember back in the day, you know, when they were calm, I remember people saying it stood for um, constipation and land mutation. I remember that from like primary school or something ridiculous. So there's always been this like, you know, resistance to the agency that is put in place to 
do the best job they can. And, and that's what we have to recognise, that with the incredibly low funding, I mean, they get lower funding than almost any other government agency. I think, I don't know where they sit, I think it's like second from the bottom, third from the bottom, right? So there's, yeah, you know, gambling gets more money put into it in Western Australia than environmental protection. So you have to consider that these people are doing the best they can. We can't demonise them. We can't demonise the agency. Um, obviously, there needs to be more research done so that we can make more informed decisions, but that's not the fault of DBCA. It's actually probably but, I mean, that's more, largely I mean, the fault of the government. You, you can, <laughs> can demonise the decision. I mean, I think the people... That, I think we're not saying that... You know, I don't think anyone's saying that the people are, are evil monsters. <laughs> um, but I guess the question would be, if, if is the policy, you know, the, the levers at the moment correct or not and mm. if if there's if it's a funding issue then that's you know that's a big yeah. issue it is it's i guarantee you it's a funding issue i i spend mm. most of my days of my phd just scraping together funding from various different grants um and it it's really really hard even to be one of the only fire phd students in the entire state there's not mm. even enough funding barely enough funding to hold together my project let alone like the army of people that we actually need to be studying this. Mm -hmm. But on that point though, when you have limited funding, should we be trying to figure out smarter ways to do these burns rather than burn a perimeter and then drop hellfire into the middle and burn out complete blocks, which is what they've been doing the last couple of years. And one point I want to ask you, um, Hannah, was from your experience looking after the Northcliffe um, fires, are you seeing the smaller species come back to those areas very quickly or does it take a lot of time? The plants or animals, do you mean? Uh, the animals. So you've okay. got your yeah. smaller animals, your insect, insects, your microbes in the soil and mm -hmm. in the leaf litter. Do they return quickly or do they take a while? So it really depends on the severity of the burn. So in the low and moderate severity areas of the Northcliffe fire, we've seen that there was a shift that occurred after the fire, which is totally natural obviously a disturbance comes through so you're going to see a shift in which species are there and how prevalent they are and then that slowly sh has started shifting back I mean we're still only talking a few years after the fire it's it's not it's not been a, you know a sort of full regeneration cycle yet definitely I can tell that um, but we're seeing a shift back the only areas where the shift seems to be you know at a point where it's changing into something different is these incredibly highly severely burnt areas and no prescribed burn has ever in Cary Forest has ever reached that level of intensity. The Northcliffe fire burnt for 19 days in 40 degree weather with gale force winds. So it, it burnt in a kind of way that we didn't even really know wildfire could burn. It was it, it was so severe. So it's called a catastrophic wildfire. The, the definition of this is fire so severe that it creates its own weather event. It actually created its own fire storm. So it was self-feeding. It went up into the atmosphere and made more clouds that made more lightning that made more fire, right? Terrifying. No prescribed burn is doing that. <laughs> so no prescribed burn that we've seen, that you would have seen, would be able to even kill a mature carry tree, let alone to cause these tipping points ecologically. The only time in carry forest that we've seen that is after this incredibly catastrophic wildfire. Going back to the prescribed burns and these kind of blanket approaches that they use, is there such a thing as a cool burn and a hot burn? And do you think that they should be at least trying to protect the canopy 
of these forests, whereas a lot of the prescribed burns we see go mm. through and they wipe out everything and then they get those green jumpers where it regrows. Mm. Epicomic resprouting. Yeah. Well, yeah. epicomic resprouting is an absolutely awesome and natural part of ecosystem regeneration. I mean, it, trees don't just do that after fire, they do that after any disturbance, mm. especially eucalypt. So you can, like, you know, see a eucalypt that's had an insect infestation and it will start epicomically re-sprouting where they look like they're wearing the woolly green jumpers, right? So it's not just fire that does that. That's actually just their response to any sort of, like, stress. They lose their canopy, so they're like, oh, quickly, quickly, we need to keep photosynthesizing so we can continue to make more canopy, right? So I wouldn't say that just because you've seen epicomic re-sprouting, that means they're, you know, it's bad or anything. Because that's, you know, you can just burn a small part of a tree and its response will be to epicomically re-sprout just to, like, get that extra energy. The other reason they do it is because after fire, um, fire leaves behind after it's burnt a lot of nitrogen and phosphorus, which is what plants need to grow, right? So one of the arguments is the plants do this epicomic re-sprouting really quickly so that they can uptake as much nutrients as they possibly can from that influx from the fire. So that's out of kind of, I don't know, some really cool, exciting stuff. So not necessarily they're just doing it to help themselves grow more canopy, but they're doing it to take advantage of the fact that the fire has deposited these nutrients into their soil. And they're like, want to take them up because, as you guys probably know, in southwest Australia, we have some of the most nutrient impoverished soils in the entire world. So our plants have adapted all these cool ways of going and getting them up really cool. And one of them is this, yeah, epicomic re-sprouting following fire. So not a bad thing. Looks kind of weird. But I promise you in like, you know, five to ten years, it'll start to look normal again. They'll lose their epicomics. They'll have their canopy back. Yeah. That's good because uh, one of the sections <laughs> I look, on, look after on the Billman Tractus is full of these black trunks. With yeah. Green oh, and you know what's fantastic is that they are epicomically re-sprouting. So mm. following Northcliffe 2015, the reason we know the carrier dead in these sections that were burnt so severely is because there was no epicomic re-sprouting at all. And that's, we've never seen that in Carrie. Basically, we thought Carrie could withstand anything. It would always epicomically re-sprout and be wearing its little jumper and be stoked. But we've seen that with the 2015 North So as long as you're seeing epicomics, it's all G. Mm. <laughs> I think one of the things that related to what you were asking, Mark, about the canopy and saving the canopy, something that I saw that really frustrated me was in Lane Pool's special conservation mm. area. Yeah. They, they burnt that, I think, two years ago. And oh, you mean dwelling up Lane Pool? Lane Pool, no, sort of. Yeah, near e- east dwell. of Harvey. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. sorry, there's another Lane Pool yeah, down in my field site. <laughs> I was like, wait, what? Not, lane, not where the falls are in Barara. <laughs> Got no. it. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that I, I witnessed there was there had been a burn through the area, and a lot of the trees, and this is a, this is old growth that's never been logged. The roots had burnt out, and DBCA pulled them down. Either, either were pulled down or they were cut down because there was a lot that were just cut down. Mark, you've seen this area. Yeah, I walked through it a yeah. year after. Mm. Um, and that's, I guess that's something that the question, is there a way that that can be done? Like a burn can go through there, but can be a bit mm. more cautious with things like that? Because I guess the, the problem there that we, you know, with, with what Pierce was saying about areas that, um, you know, when you have this, this, the canopy and it prevents the plants growing beneath mm. is that when when these trees just get pulled down then that creates a more open ground for plants to grow and then sort of it feeds a, it's a self-fulfilling you know feeding into the cycle mm, yeah i mean I, I can't comment on why they would have d- done that i know that in some of my field sites the standing dead carry the trees that were killed by the fire that were especially the ones that were along the highway were removed because they were an incredibly high risk to a uh, fall risk i mean 
I've been standing very close to a carry tree while it's fallen before and let me tell you it is not something that you want to be anywhere near it's one of my biggest fears um so it could have been something like that it could have been a tree that was already sick before the fire so the fire managed to kill it I mean it's very unusual for a jar to be killed by fire we still really haven't seen that Waruna Yarl loop we're waiting on the results of a study from the Murdoch people that are studying that to see if if there's been any long-term mortality from that but yeah it could be preventative yeah, I couldn't comment on whether why they would have done that though. That seems interesting. <laughs> Potentially often, strange. Um, big old stags will be cut down um, to prevent them turning into chimneys and then oh, yeah, spreading sparks, and then that becomes yeah. an issue in terms of being yeah. able to put that fire out because mm. it just keep reigniting. Uh, but then, so how did those oh, forests ever become? old growth or you know how do we ever right well this is kind of the point i was saying before we we might have to just keep preserving the areas that are currently old growth long unburnt but we might have to consider that there are areas that have been burnt unfortunately or have been you know disturbed in some way that might need to continue to have that burn or disturbance in the future because it's too dangerous to let them you know reach that Point that you're talking about. So the important thing, like we were saying, is to preserve those areas that are long unburnt. But in terms of jarra as well, I mean, old growth jarra forest is very rare because most of it was logged. So it's incredibly special that there's a space place that that you know I've experienced very little old growth jarra in you know in my whole life. Basically. It wasn't that special because it was all. <laughs> it was, well, I would say that if it is true old growth, I mean, if it's trees that are 250, 300 years old. They're pretty fire tolerant. If they have the epicomics coming up now, like I don't know when it was burnt, mm. but within five to seven years, you'll see it. You will barely be able to tell that it's been burnt. It's just going to be a healing process. It's kind of mm. like, you know, the phoenix rising from the fire. It's got to be an ugly baby for a while before it's a beautiful phoenix again. <laughs> I guess, but the, the, with these these burns, because you, you've talked to two people at DBC who've said it's a five-year cycle, yeah. so you never get to see them ever not right. become... Right, yeah. Look, and I, yeah, I would... Yeah, I would be questioning that. But again, I suppose then maybe comes into it. Maybe they've realised that these critical areas around, for example, Bibbulmun track huts, where I know they are really trying to protect them because of recent tragedies that have occurred, right, that maybe they are burning more frequently. And that happens to be the areas where you're hiking. So you, you see this and it is it is crappy. I, I, I think yeah. um, if you're trying to achieve uh, targets for hectares per year that are prescribed burned, and you want to avoid the kinds of impacts that we've seen when prescribed burns escape and burn out towns or threaten towns like we had in Margaret River, that does drive a certain behaviour and, and it drives a certain um, f- uh, fuel reduction um, frequency and intensity in certain places. I, I don't think that that's necessarily ecologically optimal by any means, but mm. it, you know, th- there's large areas that, that can be burnt out relatively easily, relatively cheaply to help reach mm. that hectare target. And I just think that the way that that's being done uh, is certainly not uh, uh, e- ecologically sustainable. Well, I think one of the other things that we should consider when when looking at prescribed burning, we, we're not in the same context that we were in, you know, post-colonial um, um, habitation of Western Australia. We, we, we have fragmented landscapes. 
we have situations where we're burning very large areas and, and, and we have different uh, impacts. We have weeds and pests now as part of our ecosystems, mm. which are often exacerbated by fire. If you put fire through some of these areas, you can see you know, weed infestation becomes a real problem, especially around areas where hiking and, and, and human mm. uh, access occurs. And you think about uh, the level of access that uh, you give to predators such as fox and cats uh, when, when, you, when you put fire through areas. Uh, there is really good research to show that foxes and cats and those mm. predators will go into these areas after fire or they will even uh, predate on, on animals that are trying to escape fire. Yeah. Uh, so you've got a complex kind of situation now where we're trying to manage different drivers of, of uh, impacts on biodiversity. Mm. And in many cases, uh, putting fire through these places can make those those things worse. So, we you know we we can't just treat it in in the same way that that we would have done you know that that, that Aboriginal people might have done, and mm. and we're certainly not doing that anyway. Even though that does get used as a as a rationale, um, we, we've actually got a whole range of different drivers that we need to be um, you know very concerned about. And 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 climate change is another one. If we're going to continuously burn ecosystems like peat swamps we're not going to have them in the future. We're going to lose the kinds of species that, that, that are there and are uniquely there and don't exist anywhere else uh, because we just won't have those, those kinds of ecosystems in the future because they'll be changed, they'll be dried out, they'll be desertified and we'll have very different ecosystems. It's interesting you say that about the peat swamps because obviously part of the Northcliffe fire involved a really huge area of those peat swamps where we've got like the Walpole burrowing crayfish and all those incredibly endemic short-range species. And I found from my research that the peat swamp is the best at regeneration following fire, which is very surprising. And this is unpublished results, so, you know, ooh, very hush-hush. But, but yeah, I was really surprised by that. So the areas of peat swamp that burnt most severely had the most, um, I suppose, significant shift in community dynamics. And in layman's terms, that's basically like the plants and animals that were there changed most drastically in which ones were there and in which quantities they were there in the sites that were burnt most severely. However, they also went back much more quickly to what they were before, much more quickly than even Jarrah Forest, which I thought was really fascinating. So it's something to consider that it, it, it might seem initially after very severe fire especially that they're altered beyond repair, but they're actually quite a lot more resilient than potentially mm. I, I guess think. I'm also looking at it from a carbon perspective and as someone who cares about climate change I'm interested in being able to capture and keep as much carbon in our soils in our forests in our ecosystems rather than have that in the atmosphere in, indeed that's what the Commonwealth government is paying many land managers to do by you know paying for carbon credits as part of the emissions reduction fund um, while at the same time we're undertaking land management practices on public lands that uh, severely diminish the amount of carbon that's stored in those ecosystems, whether that's logging or burning. And, and when I look at a peat swamp that's lost uh, a foot or two of its of its peat, uh, which has been you know accumulating there over tens of thousands of years because of one fire event, that's a huge amount of carbon that's lost into the atmosphere that's going to take a very, mm. very long time to recover. Uh, so the species is one thing, but the uh, actual carbon storage in these ecosystems is another thing mm. again. That's a huge consideration too. Yeah, because I've heard stories of mountain ash in Victoria and when colonial settlers first got here, they pretty much said it was too wet to burn. And I'm assuming <laughs> the, the Cary forest is very similar. Uh, mm. Mm, Cary, Cary and mountain ash are often 
you know, sort of tarred with the same brush because they look so similar, you know, like the forests themselves with the exception of tree ferns, like you'd be standing in one and standing in another unless you're a botanist, you're probably like, oh, yeah, same thing, right? Um, but they actually are very different. I mean, I, I go to a lot of conferences where I talk to mostly people that study fire in Eastern Australia because there's a lot more fire ecologists over there just because there's a lot more people. <laughs> and they always say that. They're like, oh, well, Carrie's the same as mountain ash. And I'm like, well, eh, I don't know. The results are showing that it's similar, but it's definitely not the same. It is drier for sure. It's not at altitude at all. <laughs> um, and it does have these key differences, especially in its fire regeneration. It's a lot more fire tolerant than mountain ash. I mean, we, we've seen mountain ash killed by fire countless times. We've never seen carry killed by fire until 2015. Mm. I've been to Alpine National Park and the amount of dead mountain ash yeah. there is quite depressing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. It is, it's not as fire tolerant eucalypt, no. Mm. All right, so to wrap things up, um, there's a question for both of you around, Hannah, what you're studying and Piers, what you've observed and um, read throughout your time is, is anything being done to approach DBCA about these practices or are they kind of being left to their own devices? And if they are being approached, how receptive are they? So Start well, with you, Piers. Yeah, I mean, DBCA is constantly being approached by various different sectors of the community to burn more or burn less or burn differently. Mm. Um, so that's <laughs> that's a dynamic that's occurring all the time. And, and, and also they're seeing, um, you know, what occurs on the pages of our newspapers yeah. and uh, social media and what their ministers are saying. So there's a whole lot of um, input into an agency like Everybody BBCA. has an opinion Every, what Everyone has doing. an opinion. <laughs> uh, so absolutely they're being approached. Um, I, I think that um, the, the the level of responsiveness to that, and, and you know, you might say this is a good thing. In some cases I would say it's a good thing. In some cases it's a bad thing. The level of responsiveness I, I wouldn't say is great. And in fact, sometimes it's really important that government agencies... Uh, don't just change their policies willy-nilly depending on, you know, the, the, the most recent kind of um, popular kind of idea about something. But, yeah, so you, you, you tend to have these situations where government agencies maintain policies over, um, in some cases, long periods of time and become very defensive of those uh, policies because they are under under pressure and under attack in some cases from different parts of the community. You've got an organisation in Western Australia called the Bushfire Front that would advocate for much, much more prescribed burning. And you've mm -hmm. got uh, um, groups in the conservation sector, member groups of the Conservation Council that advocate for less prescribed burning. So you have, you know, th those different uh, sectors of the community. Um, but I think uh, ultimately there does need to be more resources put into, in, mm. in, into the independent science. Um, and that, and that's something that, that we would like to see. We would like to see our prescribed burning policies being driven more by science and less by an approach that says, well, we just need to burn the forest because that's the only way we're going to stop wildfires or prevent wildfires because I think it's far more complex than that. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I, th I think, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm not making a criticism of the agency. I think they also do um, very well with the limited resources that they've got. Um, but they also tend to sort of staunchly defend policies and, you know, in some cases there's, there's reasons for that. Yeah, and I would add to that that, yeah, it absolutely is far more complicated than anyone who's screaming, you know, yes or no or black or white understands, I suppose, as someone who's dedicated my life to this, like, you know, I don't know, this probably hasn't come as a surprise, but life as a PhD student isn't all like glamorous millionaire parties. So no, I'm, no. I'm doing this because it's something that I'm really, really passionate about and it's something that I want to 
get to the bottom of or at least do some research into so that someone in the future can help work out, you know, what we can do. And so basically the thing that we need is more research. We need more people. It's exactly what Pierce is saying, more independent research, more research in general. So DBCA at the moment um, are funding some of my project, as are the University of Western Australia, World Wildlife Fund, the San Diego Zoo, randomly. Um, <laughs> like I said, desperately finding funding wherever I can because it's it's critically underfunded area. And so they are doing this research into wildfires. They're doing the best they can with the very limited budget that they have. I'm living proof of that. The second fire ecology PhD student that's starting soon at UWA next to me is going to be looking at Kerry too. And there's a great lab at Murdoch who are doing it as well. There's just not enough of us. We're spread so, so, so thin. So I would say if there's any millionaires listening who really want a great cause uh, to donate to, donate to bushfire science. It's something that's going to be incredibly important to all of us in the future, whether we like it or not. Yeah, we'll get Twiggy Forest on that maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's in the name, name right? Yeah, like, exactly. come on. <laughs> um, but because you do get a little bit of funding from DBCA, are you then mm. going to present your results I regularly, um, yeah, actually, my supervisor, one of my supervisors is with DBCA. So I regularly talk with him and I present um, all across Southwest WA to various different um, land managers and stuff like that. Whether or not they have the resources to take Mm. my results on board is another thing. Um, And also, as a scientist, we're very cautious in saying this, definitely, here's the answer for you, go for it. Because, of course, that's not how science works. We're very cautious. I'm two, two and a bit years into my PhD now. I won't really have concrete results, at least for another year, you know. And then, you know, there's testing that. There needs to be other people to do it, not not just me, you know, not mm. just me and the handful of others that mm. are there. So how do you get that peer reviewed then if you're the only one? <laughs> well, there are other fire scientists, absolutely. <laughs> and probably someone from Mountain Ash Forest is going to peer review mine, right? Mm. Maybe someone from Berkeley in California. That ecosystem is obviously completely different taxonomically, but relatively similar in a functional sense mm. so yeah <laughs> i guess the question i would ask then is, is at the end of it if you present the information and they go oh, yeah that's great mm. but we just can't afford to do that because it's just too expensive we'll right. have to keep doing it what happens then i guess yeah you know, i mean that that is what happens a lot because mm. they're so critically underfunded mm. again millionaires twiggy come on but that's where, you know, podcasts like this are really important because that's about the community taking an interest in these things. Yeah. And, you know, when there is published science that says, you know, there's a better way to do it, it's up to the community. We live in a democracy mm. to, um, you know, be interested enough to see that. And, yeah. and that's why we need to be publishing this kind of uh, science, not just doing it, you know, yeah. with behind closed doors with the agency. Uh, but then, you know, community groups like the Conservation Council, most national parks have a friends of national park kind of community mm-hmm. group. Mm-hmm. There's groups like, you know, the, the hiking groups and, and, and people that, that engage with these environments in a recreational way. They've all got an interest in the management of these places. And if we take more of an interest and, and you know, I, I appreciate that there is science that is getting published, there should be more. Um, but we need to be, you know, holding that up to government and saying, well, there is an evidence base for doing this better. Mm. You know, let, let's actually get better at this. Yeah, I totally mm. agree. <laughs> so what can people do if they wanted to, you know, like get out there and, and get get this sort of messaging out that there needs to be more funding for this and, you know, more, more I guess, 
respect for the science of of what people are doing. Hmm. What what could people do? Well, lobby. I mean, <laughs> if you want more funding for certain government agencies to be able to undertake proper environmental management, then I suppose you need to be electing the people that have that you know in their interests and be lobbying the people that are currently in power to give more funding to agencies that do like uphold these environmental values that we care about so much mm-hmm. i have tried that i've emailed the <laughs> treasurer quite a few times because he's an avid hiker but it just keeps getting passed along the line yeah it's a bit weird in wa that our minister for environment is also the minister for <laughs> logging and mining very interesting yes <laughs> a big conflict of interest there yeah that look, that's not escaped out. that's not escaped anyone's yeah. attention <laughs> um, but yeah definitely email your local mp even your council members, maybe mm. they can get on board. But just, yeah, have yeah, a Yeah, I mean, if you've got it. the time, do a PhD or do some research or, I don't know, volunteer for someone who is. I mean, I'm always looking for volunteers to come and help me out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not I mean, doing that this, plug. <laughs> this issue about resources for management is certainly not confined to fire. It, oh, it's, no yeah. way. <laughs> it's, it's, it's managing um, all of our conservation of Absolutely. state, including state forest. And, um, yeah, there's absolutely a, a, a dearth of resources across mm-hmm. all of those different um, uh, management needs. But there are other ways to fill that other than the state government providing funding. They absolutely should be providing more funding to those agencies. But people volunteering, um, people getting yeah. involved with um, organisations that that, um, that engage with the land managers and do volunteering. And people um, managing their own lands is a big part of this as well. Because let's not forget that... You know, so much of our forests are actually on private lands. So, That's a really good point. Um, private landowners have a part of this as well. Councils have a part of in, in this um, because a lot of lands are either um, managed by councils, they, they might be uh, shire lands, or they might be under council policies that are telling landowners to, you know, do certain things, burn at a certain frequency or cut fire breaks or whatever. Uh, so there's a whole range of different stakeholders in this. It's certainly not uh, just DBCA. And as a community, we should just be paying an interest in how all land managers, including ourselves as as, as users of, of that environment, are interacting with it and, and making you know sure that we're, we're using the best science to inform those management decisions mm. where we can. Yeah, and asking a lot of questions and staying... Staying in that, um, I suppose, curious mindset, not just deciding, right, well, I'm in this camp and I think this, so therefore that's what I think. It's important as a scientist, but also as just a you know great person to be constantly questioning your own beliefs and thoughts and, you know, because things change. We get new evidence, we discover new things. You, you can't stay closed-minded. You know, you can't be like, well, I disagree with this, therefore I will always disagree with this. I suppose that's another good point to make is... Stay open-minded. If, if, you know, science comes out that disagrees with something that you thought was right, read it. Take, you know, ask questions of the person who wrote it. Make sure you understand why they came to those conclusions. Don't just immediately, you know, dismiss it as being crazy or wrong. Hmm. I guess that's one of the reasons why we wanted this podcast is not to definitively say this is what we want to do with prescribed hmm. burns. It's to ask questions about is this right? Are we doing it the right way? Are there alternatives? Get mm-hmm. you in here, Hannah, to provide some science behind it all. <laughs> sure, I'll try you my best. Provide all of his experience from the conservation side. Just kind of yeah, get people thinking about the topic, um, mm. and hopefully they are. Yeah, and hopefully we can keep this conversation going. And if people have any questions or if any any comments, please comment on this on Facebook or iTunes, wherever you're listening to it. Mm-hmm. We know we'd love to hear more about it, and maybe we might do a follow up in the future as well. 
Yeah, definitely. So, yeah. And if you want to volunteer to help out Hannah on <laughs> field studies. You know, if you like traipsing through very thick, sharp sawgrass for hours on end, picking up cockapoo, then yep. the job's no, uh, yours. <laughs> follow a few uh, Instagram accounts of UWA students. And they, <laughs> they don't Fieldwork is not all it's cracked up to be, but yeah. you know. <laughs> Thanks very much, Piers, for coming along. Thanks very much, Hannah. Thank um, you so much for having us. Yeah, your insight's been invaluable to this podcast. Well, thanks for thanks for covering the topic because it's yeah. really important. Yeah. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we'll be back in two weeks. Thank you. Uh.